Good morning. Turn with me in your cell phones to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1. Actually, I had planned to preach verses 1 through 11. Don't all laugh at once. Uh, <clears throat> what normally happens when I sit down with a text is I'll start, start to read that text, and it will be a, seamlessly attached in such a way, all the ideas flow together in such a way that it's hard to find where you should stop. So I say, okay, I'm going to preach Hebrews 1 through 11, Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. And then you start studying. And as happens every single time, the text explodes in your face. We're going to do 1 through 6. And that's going to be tight. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Let's go before God in prayer. Lord of God, I beg you for help this morning. I ask you to help me transcend mere information and education. I ask you in this preaching to breathe your life-giving word into the souls of the people you've gathered to hear it. I pray that in the hearing of your word, you will be worshipped. In the growth of our minds, our hearts also will grow. And will be filled with new appreciation and new delight in who you are, what you do, and how you do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text begins this morning with a concept of a cloud of witnesses. So given that we're dealing with a cloud of witnesses, I think the obvious question to ask is, what is a witness in this context? And I've got two perspectives that I think are both in play as we look at the beginning of Hebrews 12. What is a witness? Well, on one hand, a witness is something, someone who has seen something and someone who is willing to testify that this is so under all the penalties of perjury. It kind of goes a little beyond mere gossip. A witness says, I was there, this is what I saw, and I'll swear to it in court. I'll swear to it before God. The witnesses here have completed lives of faith, and in so doing, they've overcome great obstacles. They've achieved great things. They've endured great sufferings. And through it all, they have by faith received the consummation of God's promises. This testimony of their lives, brought down to us by Scripture, proclaims the reward of faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen this. 
look to us, we can tell you trusting Christ pays. Trusting Christ pays dividends. He keeps his promises. He keeps his word even when we can't see it. But there's also another perspective on the concept of a witness in this text. A witness here, again, somewhat more metaphorically, is also an encouraging spectator at a sporting event. The author mentions a race. We, the church militant, are running that race. The church militant is us. People on earth still fighting the fight of faith. God calls us a church militant because we're still engaged in spiritual warfare. We're running that race while they, the church triumphant, all those who have died in the Lord before us, they're cheering us on from the stands. So if you've got a dead relative who loved Jesus, on the one hand, that dead relative who loved Jesus is blended into the cloud with all of the other dead Christians. And he's proclaiming, we have seen that everything Jesus ever told you about who he is and what he has done is true. We see that, we testify that to you from inside the heavens. Know this, it's real. And they're also saying, I'm here for you. You're not alone. I can see the pain you're going through and the difficulties you're overcoming. And I'm with you. More on that a little later. I need to call union with Christ. We'll get back to it. But we're being witnessed. We're being watched by those who have gone before us. Think of perhaps your parents who have died. My parents have died. And I tell you, they see things in my life now that they didn't see when they were here, and that matters to me. Soon, sooner than anybody thinks, I'll be dead. And my children will wonder what I can see now, wonder what I know now. But I hope they know I'll be cheering them on. I'll be calling them home. Well, these are witnesses. Witnesses to what? What is it that they're witnessing to? Okay, I'm about to unload a really great, profound theological insight here. Are you ready? Here it comes. Hebrews 12, this is earth-shattering, comes right after Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is one of the best-known passages in all of Scripture. They call it the catalog of faith, the hall of fame of faith. Uh, It shows almost to the point of exhaustion the power of faith and trust in God's promises, in God's covenants. It is a historical tour de force, listing things endured and things accomplished by men and women who believe God's words. God will do what he says he will do, even in my suffering. God will be who he says he will be, even if I have to die. And what we get in Hebrews 11 is this long, long list of person after person and group after group, some named, some unnamed, of people who accomplished accomplishment after accomplishment. 
people who endured trial after trial. And even when it appeared from an earthly perspective that they died for nothing and received nothing, they passed down a testimony that it was all worth it, that God was there and that he was keeping his promise. Now, how many of these are there? Why does that matter? Well, there's a bit of a a legal argument in play here. And legal arguments have to be, well, legal. The law says something to this point. Deuteronomy 19.15. This is part of the rules of evidence in a biblical court. Deuteronomy 19.15 reads, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. You want to prove something, somebody guilty, I need two to three witnesses minimum. Well, does Hebrews 11 meet that standard? Uh, yeah. Hebrews 11, which is, the ink isn't dry yet when we're writing this. Hebrews 11 has just listed as witnesses at least 16 individuals whose names are given. That does not count unnamed individuals, of which there are many more. It does not count groups of varying sizes that are alluded to in passing. So, by the rules of evidence, Almighty God is found overwhelmingly guilty of trustworthiness in the first degree with special circumstances. He is guilty of trustworthiness. And the author moves from this argument back in Hebrews 11 to Hebrews 12 in a call for discipline, focus, and determination in the Christian's life. I don't believe that the Apostle Paul physically wrote Hebrews. There are reasons for that I'm not going to go into right now. But I do believe that he was in the room. And this author, who is Paul's best student, does exactly what Paul does in Paul's epistles. What he does is he's got his whole first 11 chapters front-loaded with massive amounts of theology. And then he's got this word, therefore. Because all these things are true, the indicia, these things should result in your conduct, imperatives. Truth produces life. Truth produces conduct. Paul structures his thought around that concept in all of his letters. And here his finest student does the same thing. Therefore, now we just spent a little time answering the question, wherefore is the therefore therefore? We're coming out of this transition from Hebrews 11 to Hebrews 12. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, surrounded, that's going to get important pretty soon, let us also, one, lay aside every weight. What holds us back? What distracts us? What clouds our focus? Our passage is calling us to be men of one thing, whose lives are about one thing. Our passage places the example of the Old Testament believers before us, and it reminds us of their single-minded focus on the things of God. It calls us to imitate that. 
I'm going to give you an example of a man who was about one thing. And he pursued this one thing with such courage and determination that he has become one of my heroes. I am a nerd. I am a card-gearing, thoroughgoing, devout nerd. Which means I don't have a lot of heroes in the world of sports. I doubt seriously that I could name 10 active professional sports. Sorry, professional athletes in all sports combined today. I don't think I could do it. And yet I have a hero in the sport of boxing. My hero is Rocky Marciano. I don't know how many of you have heard of him, but on the first day of his boxing career, Rocky Marciano was standing through in front of this manager named Charlie Goldman, who was one of the great managers in the golden age of boxing. And he heard this. He said, Rocky, you're short. You're slow. You're fat. And you got no reach. You got T-Rex arms. What are you prepared to do? In answer, Rocky brought to boxing the most fanatical discipline that's ever been seen in any kind of athletic competition anywhere before or since. Between fights, in the normal course of his life, he ran six to seven miles a day. That included Christmas, that included all other holidays, that included his own and his children's birthdays. During his eight-year boxing career, he never missed a day. That's when he didn't have a fight scheduled. Never missed a day. He also did calisthenics and other conditioning exercises, again, between fights. He worked a 300-pound heavy bag just to stay in top shape. Again, normal life when there's no fight scheduled. When he'd sign for a fight, he would jack it up a bit. Warrior be- uh, Rocky became a warrior monk. No phone calls. No radios. No newspapers. No discussions about anything but training. Training. Train- no contact with his family. No contact with the outside world. He was in training camp for one thing. To train. From before sunup to after sunset. In training camp, when he had a fight schedule, he went from six or seven miles a day to nine or ten. That's his morning run. In the last week before a fight, it was 12 to 15 miles every morning. That's before he picked up the rest of his training regimen. During the day, he did his own kind of wind sprints. He would run a couple of hundred miles up a hill as fast as he could. That ain't enough. Let's run back down. Backwards. Then he would lift a 100-pound rock over his head and throw it as far forward as he possibly could. Again and again and again. He invented a kind of crunch that combined kicking a heavy medicine ball out to a trainer. I'm not sure what that means, but that, looks, that just sounds intimidating to me. Uh, he did several hours of calisthenics every day in addition to everything else. And several days a week, 
Rocky went shoulder deep in a swimming pool and threw hundreds of underwater punches for up to an hour. And then, in the late afternoon, he would spar. At the end of the day, he would cool down by fast walking another 10 miles. There's never been anything like it in the history of sport. He did this for three months so that he could go 15 rounds. And it made him not merely the heavyweight champion of the world, but Rocky Marciano is the greatest boxer who has ever lived, despite his limitations, because he was inexhaustible and indestructible. That's dedication. That's a man of one thing. But he did all that in pursuit of a crown that was destined to perish. How determined are we? How fanatical are we? How dedicated are we to the pursuit of the eternal glory of the living God? Are we willing to put in Marciano amounts of time for a crown that does not perish? Are we willing to put in Marciano amounts of focus and determination for a crown that does not perish? I've never known athletic discipline. I am, again, a nerd. But studying Marciano gives me a lot of respect for people who govern their lives that strictly. And it's given me the goal to govern my spiritual life with that kind of determination and rigor. So the author continues, laying aside every sin which clings so closely. Sticking to sports, my favorite field now. Usain Bolt, you know who that is? Fastest man alive. Usain Bolt did not set world records in the 100 and 200 meters with his shoes untied. That's not how that works. Our continuance in sin, in neglected sin, in unfought, unresisted sin, it blurs our vision of the goal. It entangles us in more obstacles and in more pitfalls. Obstacles and pitfalls we don't need. They're unnecessary. Lose the race because the other guy's faster. Don't lose the race because you're distracted or half-hearted. Verse, verse 4 calls this way. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. To run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Greek word for race, the idea of a race, is the same word from which in English we get the word agony. That surprised me too. It's agon, agony. That's their word for a race. That calls up certain expectations, doesn't it? It's expected that your exertions will hurt. That's a given. You haven't endured until you've resisted and overcome pain. The entire focus of your life is against what the world loves. Your priorities are different. Your goals are different. Your motivations are different. Christ himself guarantees 
that you're going to encounter resistance. Perhaps even resistance unto death. That's a promise. There will be problems that your faith will cause you. You're going to be in friction with the world at all times. You live for Christ. You are going to be maliciously misunderstood. You live for Christ, you're going to be slandered. You live for Christ, you're going to be called weird. That was the burden of chapter 11. All these things are going to happen to you if you live for Christ. There's a price to pay to live this way, and only faith can pay it. But this is the agon. This is the race that's set before us. The path marked out for us by the one that we look to. The one whose lane we are now running in. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You might be familiar with another translation. Anybody heard any other translation of that verse? Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Either way, here, Jesus joins the cloud of witnesses. He's added to that cloud. He's another one of the witnesses. Indeed, he's what a lawyer might call a star witness. He's at the head of that cloud, and we have the infallible testimony of his life, his death, his resurrection before us. Look at the parallel that the author draws. As he urges us to run with endurance the race set before us, he points to the joy that was, same word, set before Jesus, for which reason he endured. Who, for the joy that was set before him, like the race that is set before us, endured the cross. All right, what's the joy? Well, the joy was redeeming you. And the reason that the joy was redeeming you was one, he loves you, and two, his redemption of you glorified the Father. Anybody happen to remember what man's chief end is? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I remind you that Jesus Christ was a man. And His chief end, more consistently than any of us, was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And part of that glorification is displaying His justice and mercy by the redemption of a multitude that no man can number. And by taking, taking that multitude into his body, knitting them into himself, and presenting them as a single glorified body before the Father, and rejoicing in that fellowship forever, in delighting in what that fellowship reveals about the power and wisdom and holiness and mercy and love of the triune God. That is the joy that is set before him. I ask you, what's that worth? Well, Jesus' answer was, a cross and more. That's what that's worth. The endurance covers the whole grand sweep of what's called, in theology, Jesus' state of humiliation. That, that state of being that he was in from the time he entered the womb of the Virgin Mary as a human being. His incarnation, his birth, his life, his ministry, the persecution he suffered, the poverty, the slander, the arrest, the trial, the beatings, the mockings, abuse, 
torture, the cross itself, and the burial in the tomb. All of that constitutes Christ's state of humiliation. That's what he endured. That's what the glory of God in your redemption was worth. The price he was willing to pay. How willing was he to pay that price? The next phrase is despising the shame. Despising. What do you think that word means? I was raised to believe that word meant to hate a whole lot. But to everything our hateful world could do to strip Jesus of his glory, Jesus replied, Is that all you got? Is that all? That's how Muhammad Ali beat George Foreman. Ali was in the ring, and Foreman, one of the strongest men that's ever, ever been in a boxing match. He, he was just a monster of a man, was pounding away, and Ali was ducking and ducking and getting away, and couldn't, Foreman put, couldn't put a glove on him. And every time Foreman would miss, Ali would say, Is that all you got, sucker? Is that all you got? And then Foreman would once in a great while connect with that massive left of his. And my, Ali would shake it off and say, Is that all you got? You hit like a girl. He beat him by exhausting him. He beat him by lighting his fury, making him fight harder than he could fight. And that's what Jesus is doing to Satan. Is that all you got, sucker? The word for despise does not mean merely to hate. It doesn't even mean merely to hate a whole lot. It means to look down on, to have contempt for. All you can throw at me, dread accuser, is trivial, is nothing and less than nothing compared to the joy that is set before me, that is my sure and certain destination, whatever you may do to me. Consider what he's trivializing. Consider what he's pouring scorn and contempt on. Think about those nails driven through that wrist. Think about those thorns driven into his head. Thinking about pushing up on that bottom nail in the feet. Think about the slow asphyxiation, but no, that's the easy part. Thinking about the abandonment of all of his friends who fled in terror rather than stand with him in his crucifixion. Betrayal by one, denial by another. Absence of the rest except John. But that's fairly easy. How about this? How about the sense that his own father, which he, with whom he had endured the unimpeded bliss of eternal and perfect fellowship, ripping the Trinity by turning his back in judicial rejection of his son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even that, he throws back in the devil's face and says, Is that all you got? Is that the best you can do? Because I got a joy before me that's worth even that. And I'm going to overcome and annihilate you. Bring it on. This is the kind of spirit 
that our text intends to work in us. A spirit where we can look at a hostile, raging, furious, hateful world, as we are going to be increasingly called to do, and say to that hostile world, is that all you got? That's what Jesus did. That's what the Hebrews 11 saints did. Why? We've seen the how. It was the joy that was set before them. Why? Well, here's a description of that joy. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now would be a good time for me to go back to that doctrine that I can never get away from for more than a few minutes. We have talked about union with Christ a lot. We've talked about it enough so that there are certain things that you already know. You know that if he, where he sits, we sit. Where he is, we are. So the idea that you are enthroned with him should not be a new idea for you. Similarly, you've heard many times about the implications of union with Christ for our relationship with each other. I'm united with Christ. You're united with Christ. I'm one with Christ. You're one with Christ. Well, what has to follow? I am united with you. We share the same body. There is an inviolable unity that subsists between you and me that is close as the unity between my fingers and my hand. Now what follows? As usual, but wait, there's more. Christ reigns in heaven. He is united with all the Old Testament saints there. He is united with the entirety of the church triumphant. What follows? So are we. All those people whom you loved, who you've seen carried down this aisle to the graveyard, they are not dead. They're more alive than you are. And you are in union with them. They don't just see you. They are a part of you and you of them. And the union which generates such love among us here horizontally has a second vertical dimension aside from our union with God. We're united with all of those. We are one body with all of those who have gone on before us and have experienced the triumph and the final consummation of the gospel. And their treasures belong to us as surely as if they were in our bank. We share in that. We share in Christ and we share in that union. Stop missing your loved ones. They're here. You are within them and they are within you as you abide in Christ. Oh, bless communion, fellowship divine. We feebly struggle, they in glory shine. Yet all are one, for in thee, for all are thine. Alleluia, alleluia. That's what that means. 
We are of one body with the crowds in the stands who fought the good fight, who have finished the race, who have received the crown of righteousness laid up for those who love His appearing. So when you're discouraged, do what verse 3 says. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When you're discouraged, look at the outcome of Christ's endurance. Consider, meditate on it, think about it. Scripture is always telling us to think. It happened to Him, it will happen to you. But by faith, He has granted that you may participate in His endurance. What does Paul say? What's the goal of his life? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. That when I'm tired, when I'm discouraged, when I'm in pain, there is a man who is God who died on a cross and still carries its wounds who is in my suffering with me as my companion and comfort. And he sings the hymn of the cloud of witnesses into my ear. And I am all the more willing to suffer because my suffering is a companionship of his presence. When we say that Christ has given us his life, we do mean that he has died in our place. We do mean that, but we also mean much, much more. We actually mean that he, by his spirit, has made his home in us. He is our new life principle. Scripture uses words like birth, new birth, regeneration, resurrection, life from the dead, heart of flesh, clean heart, right spirit to describe this reality. And life in this reality can be difficult. It calls for discipline. It often calls for a radical adjustment of expectations. The readers of Hebrews are starting to have some problems. Why was the book written? Well, the book was written because these Jewish believers were taking heat from the synagogue. They'd lost jobs, they'd lost friendships, they'd lost family members, they'd lost relationships. They'd taken some heat. As the author points out, they haven't resisted to blood. But there, there are problems. And some of these Hebrew Jewish Christians are considering abandoning the Christian faith and going back to Judaism. And the author encourages them by asking, well, what did you expect? Of course that's happening. We don't give up when we expect the pain. We give up when the pain surprises us. We don't resent pain in and of itself. We resent pain perceived as injustice. As something wrong done to us. But Scripture has redefined pain for us as that which we share with the Savior whose pain 
reconciled us to himself. It's also what happens when redeemed men live in the necessary friction with an unredeemed world. It's going to hurt. What did you expect? After all, things are fairly easy for you, says the author, and your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Again, these readers have probably endured a lot more than any of us have at the hands of the enemies of Christ. But they're still alive. Some of them are impoverished. A few have done some time. But here, the neurotic persecutions are still future. So our author is telling them, don't give up now. No, no, no. Don't give up. Get ready for it to get worse. Your comfort isn't the point. Your physical luxury isn't the point. If God did not love you, he wouldn't take enough interest in you to correct, discipline, and strengthen you. He wouldn't send you running up hills and running down backwards and throwing rocks out in front of your face. There's a reason for all this. In verse 5 and 6, frame all this current distress in an unexpected way. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He's about to quote from, uh, from Solomon in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. He describes Solomon's words as an exhortation, an encouragement to do well. But what kind of encouragement? Well, an encouragement that addresses you as sons. People, you're not members of a club. You're not part of a social group. You're sons. And the language used here mirrors the language about to be used from Proverbs. It's adoption language. Oh, by the way, it's royal language. What's going on in the book of Proverbs? Solomon wrote that book not necessarily for the general public. He wrote that book for one person. A wayward son named Rehoboam. That's who the book was for. A beloved son. A wandering son. A foolish son. So then you get this quote. This book was written for this wandering wayward son who also was the crown prince. Then comes the quote, which is actually a paraphrase. Verse 6. My son, do not regard lightly, lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I went and checked. The exact wording of the quote in, uh, in the ESV of Proverbs is this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. A lot of us here are facing some pretty grim times right now. Illnesses abound. Friends and relatives are dying. I've lost, in the last couple of years, over 30 clients on my insurance debit. Just an amazing number of people who have died. The economy has lost its mind. 
No job is particularly secure. The political sphere is something out of Kafka. Rome is burning, and the Neros in both parties are, blame, are trying to frame the Christians for it. It can be discouraging. It can be scary. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that none of it is random. God reigns. When the world displeases us, God disciples us. The pains we endure are the shepherd's rod that comforts us as it contains us. The trials we endure are Marciano's morning run preparing us for the whole 15 rounds. It's not punishment. It's guidance. It's correction. It's refinement from a loving, fatherly hand. So submit to it in that spirit. Let your burdens prove to you that you are indeed the Son in whom He delights. Amen. Ah, oh, Lord God. We are often perplexed by the troubles that we endure. We crack under them. We complain about them. We're overwhelmed. And I plead with you that the words of the author of Hebrews, empowered by your indwelling Holy Spirit, would give us new eyes and new nerve endings with which to perceive the suffering, the discipline, the chastisement, the strengthening and, re and refinement that you're bringing about among us. Give us hearts for your glory, appetites for your praise, that we might stand, that we might not flee, that we might suffer well and call men to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.